This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. We are continuing our discussion with interesting cases that we could never forget. And I'm here today uh, without JP. Uh, JP is busy on call. And I'm here with Greg Basil. Greg has been a friend of the podcast. He was here on one of our early episodes with Dr. Rick Komatar talking about how to ace the sub-eye. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, no, thank you for having me back on. Happy to be here. Yeah, now, now, do you want to just introduce yourself again to our audience so they can know a little? You have a very unique background. It's quite interesting, actually. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, um, I wasn't uh, kind of, I guess, a traditional applicant to neurosurgery. Um, I, I had a career in finance on Wall Street before I came to medicine and decided I wanted to do something different. So I went back and did a post-bac pre-med program and then ultimately ended up, you know, at Tufts Medical School and finally in neurosurgery here in Miami. And I'll be staying on here as faculty, actually. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we're so lucky to have recruited you. And, and you know, you've been doing a lot of interesting things. I know you also worked in innovation with Carl Heilman when you were a medical student, right? Yeah, I know. Uh, Dr. Heilman's great. And I, we still have a great relationship and uh, a really pleasure to work with him. Well, you know, when I see Carl at the Suns meeting, he always tells me you did a lot of initial work on the East shunt. I think it's called. The yeah, East I was doing some of the I was doing some of the work um, figuring out the anatomy uh, using um, scans um, uh, of the inferior petrosal sinus for their for their East shunt system. So that was kind of exciting to be a part of that. And obviously, they've taken it way beyond what I was working on back then. Yeah, very cool. I think we'd have to have Carl back on to talk about the eShunt because it is such a such a game changer of a device if it if it becomes clinically successful. Um, so as we're talking about cases, you know, the audience we have is quite diverse. And right. Obviously, you know, I, I already told our audience about one of the cases that really impacted me, and we kind of wanted to get voices from all across the spectrum, sure. right? And I know you're a, you're a little bit younger than me. You're getting started, but I I always feel like our our everyday life is fascinating. That we run into fascinating cases every day, yeah. every week, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to to sort of take this maybe back for maybe folks that are still in training or people want to reflect back on their own training and think about maybe some of the cases maybe when you were in training that might have had an impact on you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned the topic of the podcast earlier before I I came down here to your office. And, um, you know, I was thinking about what what was an interesting case for me? And obviously we have so many interesting cases, you know, in residency, you're, you're lucky you get to do thousands of cases. And you know, some of them are interesting because they're very complex and some of them are interesting um, because of the pathology. But then other ones are, are more impactful, I think, because they teach you kind of fundamental lessons. So that, that I was kind of thinking about that idea. And I think one case stuck out in my mind um, that fit into that last category of having a lasting impact. So I don't know if you want me to just go right into it. Yeah, or? well, OK, so I'm going to play JP for a second here. So set the stage. What? This is this is not something that happened recently, right? No. So, so this case is actually, and you know, the, I think that speaks to how impactful it was. I was in my second year of, of residency. I was actually at the beginning of my second year of residency. Um, you know, it was a, a, a typical call night, I think. And I know I can tell you what time everything transpired around because our interns go home at 11 p.m. Okay. So, and, and then you're on your own for the rest of the night. So my intern was just about to go home and we got a call from the ER that said um, we had a young patient, I don't remember the exact age, but I think less than 18 years old, um, who had a suspected intracranial bleed. They didn't know, but based on her symptomatology, they were uh, suspecting that's what it was and they asked us to come down. And so my intern, who, was, um, who I actually just did a case with today, is still with us here today, he's now a six-year resident, um, 
he was very ambitious and he said, no, it's okay. It's 11 o'clock. I'll, I'll go quick see the patient. But I said, okay, we'll go together. Let's oh, go great. To... That's awesome. Yeah, That's so we do that. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, no, I always remember that. So, um, so he came down with me and uh, when we went down to the patient was having a severe headache, literally as we were talking to her, um, she blew a pupil um, and became unresponsive. Right, right um, in front of you. you know, she was talking and then she started saying her headache got a lot worse and then uh, became very rapidly became somnolent and then uh, her neurologic exam deteriorated significantly. But wait a minute, they already had a CAT scan, right? So she had come from an outside hospital. She didn't oh. have her imaging with us. We didn't have the reports. We had literally just got down to the room. So we didn't know exactly what it was. But we were told it was something vascular in the brain. Oh. And so actually as we were rolling, so we rolled the patient to CT. As they were rolling to the CT, I was already booking the OR because I knew. Obviously she blew a pupil. Mm-hmm. There was a mass occupying lesion in the brain. We heard something vascular. Called my attending up, said we're booking the room. We said, yes, yeah, go ahead. Let's keep going. Um, as we were rolling to CT, the intern ran and got some mannitol and was pushing the mannitol in. So... You know, I think the, the time delay... Oh, by the way, the patient was pregnant as well. So that's a big thing. But not intubated? Uh, well, no, was intubated on the way to CT scan. Okay, so yeah. so did you get to talk to her before she was intubated? I mean, briefly, like one or two Oh, words. so you did so talk to her? I was there when she was saying she had a really, really bad headache. That's like all we And got. then she blows a pupil. Well, yeah, then became unresponsive. Then and then gets intubated. Then became intubated and we're rolling wow. her CT, pushing mannitol. So all this transpired in a matter of minutes I mean, it feels like a long time right but it's really short. very very short okay and and yeah so we discover that she's pregnant somewhere along the way there that information gets delivered to us there's no family with her and she's a minor she's a minor it's so obviously there's a little bit of a complicated situation and so we we booked the or immediately so she literally rolls from ct right into the or we, we have trauma ors which is really uh-huh. nice because we're always ready on standby you know we don't have to wait and go take her upstairs right and we had the OB people come down, so they were monitoring fetal heart rate during this whole thing. Oh, yeah, and tell me, like, how far along is the pregnancy? I'm trying to remember. I think it was just at the, just at the cusp of being considered a viable pregnancy. I don't know so what So second trimester? Now. I think second trimester, okay. yeah. I don't remember the exact, exactly what it was. But, but yeah, I think second trimester. Um, and so, obviously, we're very concerned about the baby. We're concerned as a very young woman. Um, and, you know, the case was memorable for a lot of reasons, I think, you know, it was one of the first cases where I got to do a majority of the craniotomy. So I felt really good about that. And, and what did you, were you evacuated? We, we did a decompressive, you know, so, uh, you know, it was middle of the night. I think ultimately what we ended up finding, and I honestly, I don't remember what the exact pathology, but I believe it was a, an AVM that had bled. And mm-hmm. so um, in that moment, we just wanted to um, a decompressor. So we took the bone off, opened the dura, you know, not, not a complicated surgery, but what I viewed as a great outcome, in other words, she survived, the baby survived. So, you know, it was hugs and handshakes after the surgery. I'm going to say, you know. Well, that, you know, first, so just for the people who don't know, that's not straightforward. I remember uh, being a resident doing a case like that on a young boy, and, I, and the AVM was bleeding. I tried to secure the AVM, and the patient died. Yeah. Um, so, so it was smart not to go after the AVM, Yeah, we right? made a decision that, you know, in, in our trauma base, we don't have microscopes and things like uh, that. Okay. So once you make the decision that you're going to trauma, which I think we had to do because of, you know, the, the urgency yeah. of it, that that decision is, okay, well, we're not going to go after the AVM because we don't even have, you know, vascular yeah. equipment down here to, to operate with. Right. Right. So right. So it would be, be, be like a bovian. Micro instruments. None of that stuff. So, okay. So then she, okay. So, so what, back up a little bit. So she gets the surgery. Yep. She unblows her pupil. Pupil comes down. Okay. She Hemi wakes pl- up. Well, so, you know, as you know, it's never, you know, that part of it took a lot longer. Yeah. You know, from the time she got in the door to the time she went to the OR was, you know, whatever, half an hour, something mm-hmm. like that. And by the time we're out of the OR, maybe two hours total from the time she arrived. Um, but, you know, the recovery process was a lot longer. It wasn't like she woke up and was okay. And, and you're right. I have to remember the audience here. This is a general audience, not just a neurosurgeon. So... 
you know, these patients can have a you know long recovery period where they slowly, slowly, slowly get better. So from our standpoint, the fact that her pupil came down, the fact that she was moving her contralateral body, um, the ipsilateral side, she, she or, sorry, the contralateral side was, was hemiplegic of the surgery and the ipsilateral side was moving. And comatose or not comatose? Comatose, yeah, she remained right. intubated after surgery. But, right. you know, again, as a, as a second year resident, the patient yeah. was alive and her baby yeah. was alive. Big so save. In that moment, it, it, we were, I mean, I would say I was pretty ecstatic. And my intern was ecstatic. It was the first time he had probably done a surgery, I think. So he did that surgery wow. with me. And so we felt really good about it. You know, the, and I think, and we'll get to like the lesson for me of this case, but I think we always have to remember that, you know, the surgery is one part of it, but there's so many other things. So even if you think that the surgery went amazing, you know, maybe the patient's not happy with the outcome. Maybe there's other factors going on. Maybe there's social situations that you don't know about. And this is one of those cases where you feel really good about the surgery. And, you know, albeit, again, from a neurosurgeon, a relatively simple surgery, but there's the, the issue is much more complex than you may have realized when a patient walked through the door. Okay, but let me back you up for a second. So do you remember, was it dominant hemisphere? Was it convexity lesion? Like It was a dominant hemisphere. Uh, so okay. it was a left hemispheric. So obviously that you know speech was affected. Yeah. So if we, we can fast forward for a moment, we can come back to it until like long-term recovery. I didn't, you know, as you know, we rolled off service. And I, I think I was on call. I don't even believe I was on, on the cranial service at, th- at that time. But... I don't know how she ended up long, long term, but I, I, you know, I know ultimately she was extubated. Um, she had some comprehension. Speech was not really there, and she was, you know, paralyzed half her body. But not vegetative. Not vegetative. Not no. vegetative. No, no, no. Like she could communicate. She could communicate. Yeah. Just impaired. Yeah. Impaired. Okay. Wow. Okay. So, so. That's amazing. So, to to me, that is kind of a save, right? Because yeah, you no, can live I mean, to fight another day. Again, you know, we, we think about, like, what's a good outcome? And I think, you know, if you ask a healthy person on the street, you know, young, whatever, I'm going to make up an age, 17, 16-year-old, like, is that a good outcome? And they might say, no, that's terrible. I don't want to, you know, but, but for a person who comes in, you know, herniating, which, which is what that blown pupil means, who could easily have, have not survived that, you know, that might be a really but, good outcome. But, you know, outcome. I've seen 18-year-olds, even 22-year-olds who have injuries that, you're a month in and you're like, this person is cooked. Right. And then the following year, they walk into the Absolutely. ICU, right? Absolutely. We've seen a lot of those where, you know, and, and I'd, you know, I'd love to see where that patient ended up ultimately. But we've seen plenty of those patients who we thought were not going to survive. Right. And if you look back on your notes, you know, we super guarded prognosis and things like that. Um, and then you see them a year later and they're a normal person. They're back working. So you, you can't underestimate, you know, that in, in neuroplasticity in a young patient. Young people, right. right. So it's okay. So now I'm sorry to keep interrupting yeah. you. So what about the baby? So the baby, so the, I think this is where it gets a little kind of complex. So the, the baby survived. So again, we we're um, inside of her. Mm-hmm. The baby's in yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the, the pregnancy is still viable okay. is what we're told. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that night there were some odd things after the surgery. You know, we always look for someone to talk to, family. There were no family there. There were some other young people there who we didn't really know. And we didn't want to share. Obviously, for HIPAA, we're all very careful about HIPAA. So we didn't really want to share the information with them. And um, So we were all ultimately able to get in contact with a family member. And, you know, that, again, that's where the social situations get complicated. Um, this Our patient apparently had run away from home. Um, well, with, this is a lot like my story. Wow, this is really, fascinating. Is it, uh, yeah, there's some there's some parallel some parallels. Yeah, so the patient had run away from home, and um, I, you know, unclear whether the family had been fully aware of the pregnancy up until that point in time, and so there were some questions, not just about 
what happened in surgery and how the patient was doing, but overall what was going on with the patient. They were pregnant, wow. things like that, you know. Um, so I think while we were expected to be having this really, this, this kind of triumphant conversation with the family yeah. about having saved the patient, it was a little bit more sobering to realize that, you know, I guess the patient social situation was very complicated. Now, was the family aware that she was pregnant or was this like, you have to tell them about this and the pregnancy? <sighs> so it wasn't clear. The family were very clear that they did not want us to talk with the people who were there with her. Oh, the other people that were with her. Yeah, that they, those were people she, she had run away with, apparently. I assume a boyfriend or something like that, something along those lines. A boyfriend and some friends. Okay. And, um, you know, they were very unhappy about the pregnancy. So it seemed like they may have known about it, but we didn't really have an extensive conversation about that. But mm-hmm. they, they did they did really want to know, um, you know, kind of how far along she was, which I didn't have an answer for at that point in time. And, and how long, do you know how long she had been away from home for? I, was it a long time? Months, or? I think. Oh, it was a long time. Yeah, it'd been a while. And I, I think there had been some lapse in contact with family and things like that. Were they overjoyed to, to have found her? No, I mean, I I think you can imagine it was like we're calling them to let them know that I don't even know, and I'm trying. You know, we're going back now almost seven years, but I don't remember if um, they were even aware that something had happened to her. You know, the first time we were calling them was that they were finding out that she had had this bad medical problem, that she now had a surgery where we removed half of her skull, um, and yes, she was alive, but obviously not doing well, and so and now they were also dealing with this fact that she was crying down on top of that so it's very i think the emotions were very complex do you think it's possible that this avm somehow affected her cognition and she changed in personality causing her to run away uh, <laughs> that's a good question um i don't want to speculate i doubt it but who knows you know maybe if it was frontal there may have been some yeah. some you, you can't you can't say for sure and you know to be honest with you and you know how it is you know i think people always wonder about all these the backstory and stuff but when you're in that moment kind of um you know, as a resident on call or the surgeon or whatever it may be, you're just kind of more concerned with the immediate medical problems. So honestly, my mind didn't even go to try to figure out, you know, how she ended up in that place or not, just kind of figuring out what, what to do for her for the next few days. So lots of ethical and legal dilemmas. She's a minor. There are two lives involved potentially here. Parents somewhat estranged, other players that are yeah, that are friends of hers or the right. father of this Baby, yeah, I, maybe? I, I believe the father was, was present. So, you know, that's where I kind of, you know, I, I was on call that night. And then the next day, as you know, I was, I think I was on spine service. So she wasn't really technically my patient anymore. Yeah. But as you know, you know, if you operate on someone and, um, you know, you're invested in their care, you continue to kind of follow along peripherally. And so... Um, well, you're very good about that. You're, yeah, you, have, tr- uh, you have the residents. You're particularly I, good at that. I try to be, and I think it's important to have that accountability. And, um, you know, this particular... Uh, again, you know, feeling like this was my first, you know, quotes around big. But as a, as a second-year resident, big surgery that, that I had done a, a bulk of the surgery, I, I really wanted to, to see how she was doing and how the baby was doing. And I, so, you know, I, I continued to follow a little bit and touch base with our, our, our people on service to, to just check in and see how she was doing. And, you know, I think it became a little bit of a complicated question in terms of establishing proxy and what that meant for the unborn child. Um, I don't actually know ultimately what the resolution of that was, but I, but I know that became, it became a very complex issue. I mean, I imagine the ethics board got involved. I believe and, so, yeah. 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 But, you know, it's, it's actually quite timely. You know, we know that the Supreme Court of the United States is reviewing a case now out of Mississippi, right? Uh, an abortion law case, and there's a there's a lot of fanfare on the news and media about this. And 
obviously termination of pregnancy is what we call it, right? Yeah. As doctors is a very, very contentious issue for yeah. a lot of good reasons. Right. Um, and I don't pretend to want to take sides on it, yeah. um, except that I know there's a lot of good arguments on yeah. both sides, yeah. if you will. Um, right, I mean, and I think even in, in, in you know, in those scenarios that you're talking about that are being debated in, in the court of public opinion and actually in, in courts as well, um, this is even more complicated than that, right? Because now you have a, a person who's incapacitated and, you know... And a minor. And a minor. So It'd be almost easier if she wasn't a minor it's she's just about Yeah, it's probably yeah. just about as complicated as it could possibly wow. get. I, I believe ultimately the baby was delivered, was the ultimate conclusion. Wow. Um, but, um, you know, it, it was a very complicated case. And I think that I, I was very troubled, I think, in the days following that, thinking about that, you know, we were so excited to have well, you know, again, quote unquote, saved her and the baby, and then that there may there there was some question, and you know, but but again, that's my you know, as a person doing the surgery, your view is of course different than than the other stakeholders in this issue, whose opinion is probably more important than your own. <laughs> well, you clearly did the right thing, right. right? But it was more an evaluation of introspection about your emotional reaction to right. the outcomes, right? Right. To not be overly, yeah. I think I've learned in residency. I always tell people this, and and. I'll, I'll relate it to what we're talking about here, but you know, if someone tells you you're really bad at what you do, don't believe them. If they tell you you're really good at what you do, don't believe them. And I don't mean that you shouldn't take input from your attendings because you should. If someone tells you you're not doing a good job, you should think about why you're not doing a good job or what you're not doing well. But if they tell you the worst surgeon they've ever seen or the next day they tell you the best surgeon, you should not let your meter get swayed too far either way. And I think it's the same thing for outcomes. Um, there shouldn't be too much like you know, patting yourself on the back after surgery because, you know, I'm not a superstitious person, but are you setting yourself up for um, disappointment down the line? Are you, are, are there going to be complications that you haven't seen? Um, and, you know, there's so many things that can happen. So I think it's, it's, it's important to not let your needle get moved too much either way, just for your own mental well-being. Yeah, there's a Japanese word for, for that called bachi. I, there must be an Arabic word for something uh, like that, uh, right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm yeah. not sure. There may the be. old cultures, I think, in yeah. Chinese, I think it's hogai or something like that. But there's a lot of there's a lot of terms for that. and, and I don't want to say stoicism. It's not stoicism, but but um, keeping in mind that what we do is a, is a very serious business with um, a lot of potential... I want to say complications, but that just that just seems to imply medical complications. It's but complex. Let me ask you this, because you have a unique position. Your brother is a social worker, yeah. right? Your sister is a psychologist, mm-hmm. a clinical psychologist. And the, this seems to me to fall along the lines of things that they have experienced. And did you, did you call them? You tap them? Ask them? Like, what, what do you think about this scenario? Like, you know, it's early on, you know, you're, you're always so... Um, I've always been a compartmentalized kind of my my work and my kind of family. Mm-hmm. So I don't usually talk to my family too much about the stuff that happens at work. So to be honest with you, I didn't really discuss this with either my brother or my sister when it happened. And to be honest, I probably hadn't talked to them in weeks because I was probably working. working so much. You're PGY too, right, right. But but yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you that you know my you know my father's a doctor, my mom's a nurse, so I've kind of um, grown up with a lot of this these kinds of things and these kinds of discussions about, not, you know, not this exact issue, but things like this at home. So, um, I can't say that this particular scenario was discussed, but you know, well, it, it is, it, it's a very, very complicated, um, social scenario. Right. Yeah. And do you feel that coming out of this case, like 
you project your own belief system more or less. Like, I try to. Uh, well, I think I always strive to um, do less mm-hmm. because my morals aren't what my, I mean. My morals in the capacity as a as a surgeon are to do the best thing for my patient, and mm-hmm. that's it, right? And then what you believe outside of that isn't really what matters. And actually, you know, even in this particular case, it had nothing really to do with my beliefs around, you know, abortion and things like that, but more just my emotional attachment to this particular patient and my feeling that I in some way had a hand in, in helping to, to save maybe. In other words, if, if you had gone out of your way, which you did, and this surgery probably saved this young woman's life and therefore the fetuses by right. did by definition right and then the end result was a termination of that pregnancy right in some ways it can feel like you lost half the battle right you can and i think i think i agree with you that a lot of the lesson for me was to not you know it's not really my place to become involved not not that i should not be involved because as as her surgeon it's our it's our role to be her physician and to help guide her and that fetus through that entire journey through the hospital but but that my feelings on that are not what really matter. Right? You know, I don't want to sound snooty uh, even more than I already am about neurosurgery, but it's interesting that doctors can go their entire lives and not even be involved in a single case that even gets close to that. And mm-hmm. here you are, you know, early on, I mean, like, you know, early into your training, boom, and it arrives. And, and there, are, I'm sure there are many, many cases like that, and you're going to see even more like that. Yeah. Um, it's, so, it's so, so wonderful of you to share that. Uh, with us because I think that we all struggle with these internal feelings we have and sense of morality and is it worth it to be up all night helping people and I I think that you've made the case that it really is yeah well thank you I mean it's my pleasure obviously you know uh, a big part of the joy of being able to do what we do is not only to be able to help our patients which of course is what drives all of us but to be able to share some of that experience you know whether it's with our residents or are speaking on the podcast here Um, so um, you know, I feel very fortunate to have the opportunity to do that. And yeah, I, I think we get to, um, we get to, my grandmother used to say, you know, my grandmother was, was uh, an immigrant here from Iraq. She's Armenian from Iraq. So she always had a lot of wisdom to offer me on a lot of different topics, but she always used to tell me, and, and th- this is no knock on religious people because my grandmother was very religious, but she also used to say doctors are more important than a priest because it, people tell the doctor things they don't even tell the priest. Mm. And, um, I'm not saying that. I don't actually. I don't. I don't know that I believe that doctors are more important than priests. But I think we. Uh, I do think we have a very, um, you know, sacred task that we undertake, and and we do get to see people at their best and at their worst. And I think we always have to remember that it's really important. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Hi, everybody. JP here. You know, part of this series, I think, that's almost as important as the stories and the lessons derived from them are these discussions we get to have with the people telling the stories afterwards. And so I was really upset to miss this one with Greg, who I always love talking to. And uh, Dr. Wang and I thought that at least we could share some thoughts from my end about this story, since I'm a little bit closer to where Greg is professionally and where he was at the time of the story that he told. You know, I, I think the story that he tells of this young patient in trauma and a young fledgling resident taking the lead surgically for the first time and really feeling like, he was the one to save this patient. I think that is a classic story in neurosurgery. And I don't mean that in any kind of disparaging way, but I mean that with all the reverence and importance that I can put on it. That is a vintage, classic, archetypal story within neurosurgery that I think probably reflects a pivotal point in all of our careers. Certainly within mine, there are stories I can think of 
this year and last year that really reflect that experience of coming into your own and treating these cases that can be technically more simple and so there's a chance for more leadership and more autonomy in them for junior residents. You know, I was really struck by the commentary they had about the changing degree of self-worth between different patients in different cases. Like Greg said, if somebody tells you you're the best surgeon or the worst surgeon, discount both. And you really got to focus on the experience you're having at the time and your performance in that experience and for that patient. It's, it's almost a manifestation of the gambler's fallacy where you, you, know, you flip a coin 15 times, you get heads, and you just start feeling like it's due for a tails which of course is a fallacy. Every time you flip a coin, it's a strict 50-50. And every time you see a patient, while you can learn from the past and draw lessons from your past experiences, you have to be there in the present, in the moment, treating the patient in front of you. Not the patient tomorrow, not the patient in the room next door. It's you and that patient. But really, I think the most philosophically interesting part of this conversation and the story was the conversation about the fact that this patient was pregnant and the fact that you were dealing with two lives, not just one. Of course, as physicians, we're treating the patient in front of us. We're treating that young lady in this case. And so you have to make your decisions based on that. What I think is so interesting and challenging and rewarding about neurosurgery is that Given that we're dealing with the nervous system, we're not just keeping people alive. We're not just preventing death. We're not preventing morbidity in the same sense as other specialties who treat other organ systems may. We are oftentimes dealing with the very decision-making capacity of patients, or rather we're dealing with the organ that imparts decision-making capacity on the patient that we're treating. So what really strikes me in these scenarios, and in particular in this story that Greg told, was that you're not just trying to prevent this young lady from dying, and you're not just trying to prevent her fetus from dying. You're trying to protect and maintain that young lady's capacity to wake up and exercise her own bodily autonomy. You're trying to preserve her capacity to continue making her own decisions about her pregnancy, while simultaneously trying to keep her alive to make those decisions, and keep her fetus alive so she can make decisions for it, which I think just has so many layers and different aspects, philosophically, morally, ethically, religiously, that you could sit and think about that scenario all day. But it really did make me reflect on that aspect of our specialty where we maintain not only the patient's life, not only the patient's general functional capacity, independence, motor capacity, we always focus so much on strength, but we're also protecting and preserving the patient's autonomy, the patient's ability to come to decisions and enact their decisions. And in that way, we are protecting our patient's capacity to be free, independent individuals. That's all I got. Thanks for listening, everybody. And Greg, congrats on the new job. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.